And I uh, hope you're having a wonderful weekend. Yesterday we had got to go out and, man, watch the Canadian Church of Christ kids in cross country just come through. We had a first, we had a sixth, we had a second, a third, and a fifth, and a, tw- and a twelfth. And I don't know if I'm missing a few more. It was like, it was fun. I was like starting cheers. Canadian Church of Christ. Anyway, trying to get us fired up, all that kind of stuff. It was pretty fun yesterday. do also want to invite you to be here Tuesday. Shannon mentioned it, but Tuesday night, um, if y'all remember, we we kind of uh, finished out our summer and our summer school series with talking about Lord, teach us to pray. And a lot of Jesus' prayer has to do with those that don't know Jesus yet, don't know the Lord yet, don't know His Father yet. And so on Tuesdays, once a month, uh, starting this coming Tuesday, we're doing what's called Kingdom Come Prayer Nights. And we're just asking for the kingdom to come among us, to build for the kingdom, to see Jesus among us. The building will be open from 7 to 9. It's a come and go. You don't have to, you're like, man, I don't know about praying for two hours. I've never done that. That's not what it is. You can come up here for five minutes, and there'll be a little activity uh, this Tuesday night up here in the auditorium. You just follow the instructions. Um, Hopefully there'll be other people going through it. You can go through it as family, go through it with friends, go through it by yourself. Uh, We're going to do this week. Specifically, what we're going to be doing is praying and talking to God through seven different names. And we're going to make a, we're going to do it like Jericho, and we're going to walk around. You're going to walk around the auditorium, whatever path you want to take, and just pray those seven names, crying out to God, and those seven names. How that connects to His desire to connect with lost people, people that don't know Him yet. So we're going to do that. We're praying that the building doesn't fall down while we're doing those seven laps, like it did at Jericho. And I, I jokingly said in class this morning, if it's the back half so we can get new classroom space, that would be okay right, if it falls down. But anyway, that would be great. Right, Ravonda, for our children's ministry? Anyway. All right. Well, we're glad you're here. And I know that everybody probably has a great wedding story. Maybe not your own, but all of us are kind of like wisdom teeth stories, right? Where you have a story that comes from... Being at a wedding, being part of a wedding, being your own wedding where disaster strikes. Something embarrassing, something funny, something that you'll never forget that maybe wasn't funny for the first five years, but eventually became pretty funny. We've all got a wedding fail. I've got a a few. I've seen groomsmen fall down. I've messed up a few weddings. I blew right by a song in my brother's wedding that I officiated for him. We were supposed to pause and there was going to be this song. I just blew right by it like it wasn't in there. Uh, I just wanted to get out of there, I guess. I don't know what the deal was. But we all have wedding fails. Maybe the best wedding win I've ever seen was, uh, well, it wasn't really there. It was one I heard about, but I saw the video. It was when I was in college in Oklahoma State. And the whole wedding that was going on, one of the groomsmen was not up there. He just disappeared. And when it came time for the rings to be uh, swapped and the ring vows to be said, all of a sudden out of the baptistry behind the whole wedding party was this groomsman in scuba gear. And he had the, he had the wedding ring for the bride. It was awesome. I mean, it was such a cool moment. Like, you know, like creature of the Black Lagoon, he rises up, you know. It was a cool moment. Now, I don't know what you're thinking of and the stories you have in your mind on wedding fails, but I want to promise you today that the wedding fail we're going to read about today far surpasses maybe the most embarrassing thing you've ever seen at a wedding. It happens here in the book of Exodus, chapter 5 of the story. 
It starts in Exodus 19. And Israel's been rescued from the hand of Pharaoh and the yoke of slavery. They've been invited into this great covenant relationship with Yahweh God. They're there at Mount Sinai. It's a wedding. It's a time of getting to know a bride and groom. God being the groom and Israel's people being the bride. He's invited them into this relationship. But it's in this relationship where one of the more subtle but yet prominent sins is going to show up. It's going to make an appearance. It's a wedding fail brought about by idolatry. The story today is going to reveal to us something very important. It's what happens to us when we take our eyes off of our true identity and then put them on something less than the best. It's when we choose maybe what's even good or better, but we don't choose what's best. It's what the Bible knows as idolatry. And it's here in chapter 5 or Exodus 19 through the rest of the book of Exodus where we get to see our own capacity our own personal capacity, our own communal capacity to give space to unworthy things. It's what Scripture calls idol worship. This morning how I want to begin is this way. I want to take just a moment and let God speak to each of us in nudges and in just what He brings to mind. And I want to give you just a moment for us to get quiet and for you to just ask God to be honest for just a moment. Because this is going to help us if we call to mind our own shortcomings before we look at the people of Israel so that we're not standing in the place up on the mountain with God and pointing down at the people but taking our proper place, receiving His words. So I'd ask you to just take a moment and let's just ask God. God revealed to us, revealed to me where I struggle with idolatry. We're going to take just a moment of quiet and if you'd ask God where, you, where you're putting him in second place, we'll just take a moment of 60 seconds, a little bit more, of just letting God speak to us in that, and in the quiet, and I'll finish this out in prayer. Let's pray. God, we ask right now, just for a moment of peace and quiet, for you to speak. We know you speak in the quiet. I speak. I don't want to speak for anybody, but I just, I just pray, Father, that you show us where we put you second. Father, reveal to us today. Not just where we fall short, but reveal to us who you really are. May we desire you to come to the living and have our hearts inflamed with the Holy Spirit. Teach us and mold us today. In the name of Jesus we pray. Alright, so let's catch up with where we're at in the story. Because I love to recap. I'm going to set myself a timer. We're going to do a two-minute recap. 
right? Let's get it caught up, and I'm going to start the timer, and then I'm going to just run through where we're at in the book of Exodus. So hold me to this. If I go out past two, just start booing or something like that, okay? All right, here we go. So as Exodus opens up, major changes, of course, have occurred. This people group who were once free are now enslaved in the nation of Egypt, and they cry out for deliverance. Yahweh, this God of the Israelites, this God of the world, the creator God, hears their cry, and he calls a man named Moses. He calls him out of the desert to come and confront his family, in a lot of ways, Pharaoh, the king, the emperor of Egypt, and to rescue the Israelites. What happens in the first 15 uh, chapters of Exodus is a showdown between Moses and Pharaoh, but really it's a showdown between God and the gods, little g, of Egypt. God displays his power in this showdown in ten different plagues. Eventually, finally, Pharaoh releases. He relents, and he lets the people of Israel go, where they are miraculously saved through the Red Sea. From that point, we get to chapter 15. Now the people are led by God to Mount Sinai. It's here at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 where he descends on the mountain. He appears to them, speaks to them. He invites them into this covenant relationship. A covenant relationship is a binding relationship between two parties to work together towards a common goal. God's goal in this partnership is to display His goodness to the world. The terms of the covenant are what we know as the Ten Commandments. Moses, during this time, makes seven trips up and down the mountain. When he comes down, he asks the people, and God asks the people, will you do these things? And in chapter 24, they say, we will. We will take these vows to be your people. We will display your goodness to the world. We will obey the terms of the covenant. Yes, we will. They will display the promise. And that gets us to Exodus 24 through to 32. That is our recap. Exodus 32. It's after the people have said yes to the Lord. Moses has gone up to the mountain. They've already said yes, but now 40 days, it seems. Almost 40 days have passed. And during this camp out, the following happens. Follow along, Exodus 32, 1-6. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain like a wife getting ready to go out on a date, right? They gathered around Aaron and said, Come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off your gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what it what they had handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to Yahweh. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Now there's no clean way to really say this, church. It's a little bit crude what has just happened here. 
But what the people have just done to God is paralleled only to an experience that hopefully none of us ever have to see, but I'm sure has occurred. Imagine going to a wedding and watching a groom and a bride exchange vows to honor, to love each other in sickness and in health, to be there, to give themselves fully and completely to the other, to only go to the reception and find out that one has already broken those vows. That's what's just occurred. The golden calf is going to be equated in Scripture as adultery for the rest of Scripture. It's at the reception. The people have already said, yes, we will follow you wholeheartedly. And with 40 days, they have already decided not to make a God in their own choosing. The golden calf, of course, has broken three of the Ten Commandments, three sections of the covenant. They brought a God into the presence of Yahweh, number one. They made an image of a false God, number two. And they were carrying the name of God in vain, number three. Exodus 32, 1-6 through six, is an archetype, a pattern, a standard of idolatry. It will represent all idolatry that comes before it, and it will represent all idolatry that comes after it even up to today. It's what happens when we take God off His throne and we replace Him with anything else. It's what idolatry is. What I mean by that is this. Is idolatry is this. It's an optional thing made essential. It was an option. To worship other gods. Sure, they're out there, right? It's always an option. But the people make it essential. We have to have. Make us gods who will go before us. Another way to say this is, if we wanted to just say in three words, idolatry is theft. It's taking what is most beneficial for you and in your relationship with God and replacing it with something else. Idolatry is taking who is most important to you, God, and telling them you don't matter. Idolatry is the mother of so many other sins because it begins with theft of disordered love. Years ago, I read the book by Khalid Husseini uh, called The Kite Runner. It's a fictional book about a young boy in Afghanistan. And in the book, something stood out to me. Just a truth that was in there that I wasn't looking for, but I found And in the Kite Runner, he says this about sin. He says there's really only one sin. Only one. And that is theft. Every other sin is a variation of theft. When you kill a man, you steal a life. You steal his wife's right to a husband. You rob his children of a father. When you tell a lie, you steal someone's right to the truth. When you cheat, you steal the right to fairness. There is no act more wretched than stealing. And that's what idolatry is. It's Israel taking and stealing from God a relationship. And they do this in three ways. Really quick, I want to point out. First of all, idolatry is God theft. Look at 32.1. What's said there? The people get impatient waiting upon Moses to come down from the mountain. So they say to Moses, or to Aaron, they say, make us 
gods who will go before us. This is what's so interesting about idolatry to me. So, so convicting in so many ways. Is that the people here still want to worship something. They still want a little G God, right? They still want to be led. They, they still want some purpose. Just like we all do. But they think. They still think. See, we're all made to worship. You know that. Humans cannot help it. You will, whether you believe in God or not, out there, if you're hearing this, there's probably no atheists in the room this morning, but if you struggle with atheism, you will still end up a theist. Because humans will worship something or someone. Really, the only choice a human has is who or what they will worship. And idolatry is God theft because it's us saying, I want God, usually little g, but I want him or that on my terms. And it's idolatry in the Christian life because it's, I want God, but I want you, God, at this table where we'll work out and mediate the way it's going to work. That's what it is. It's God theft. Second thing they do is idolatry is gift theft. Look at here in the passage, Aaron tells in verse 2 and then verse 6. Notice what they do with their gifts. It says, take off, Aaron tells them, hey, you want a God? Take off your gold earrings that your wives and your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So the next day the people rose early in verse 6 and they sacrificed burnt offerings. This is to the golden calf and presented fellowship. Now there's a reason Exodus 32 gives us these details. The details are there because the golden earrings already had a purpose. And they already had a beginning. They came from Egypt. At the Passover. At the deliverance. They took off earrings and gave them to the people as a gift. They were like, get out of our country, the Egyptians were saying to the Israelites. Take our gold. But the gold was there to already be built into the tabernacle which is already outlined between Exodus 20 and Exodus 32, where we are. But instead of using it to build the tabernacle, this mobile Eden, the Israelites used their gifts and they repurposed to idolatry. I wonder how often that still happens. It's also a telling detail in verse 6 there that God's already told them, you're going to make fellowship and sacrifice burnt offerings at the tabernacle. And here they turn and twist it again and use a gift, worship, to this false idol. Now, I wonder how often that happens. I wonder how often we thieve from God and what we say to Him is, I want my blessing, I want your blessing, God, but I want it used my way. It's an attitude. We're gifted, not only with treasure, but I wonder how often we take what is already God's, our time, our talents, and our treasures, and we adapt it to our own desires. That is what I want. It's the theft from God of saying, I used what you gave me the way I want. And we could unpack that quite a while, but I'll let you guys do that in small groups today. The last one that they do 
as identity theft. This is the most convicting line for me in verse 5. It's not on the screen, but when Aaron saw this, in verse 5 there's this weird wording. He builds an altar in front of the calf. The altar again was made for God. They were supposed to make an altar for the Lord. That was what was supposed to be happening. He builds an altar in front of the calf. And then he makes this statement in verse 5. Tomorrow. He's like giving announcements at church. He's like, hey, tomorrow we're going to have a big event. And the golden calf is right there. And he says, tomorrow there will be a festival. And what's he say? He doesn't say to the golden calf. He says to Yahweh. L-O-R-D, capital L-O-R-D. He uses the proper name of God in place for and with and mixed in with golden calf worship. That is a strike to my heart. Tomorrow there will be a festival to Yahweh. That is a subtle Little deal, little detail in the scripture that I missed for years and years, but here's what it's about. It's about that idolatry is always identity theft. It's replacing and even mistaking the pathway to God or the way that we know God with the real thing himself. And that's exactly what Aaron does. He is converted to golden capism in this moment. And he's stealing God's identity and replacing it with something much less. Taking what might give you momentary happiness and believing that will give you fulfillment. Taking what you believe will make you feel like you've got it all together. Like a job. And then pouring your life into it over and over and over and over. It's that elusive idea that appears up in our life where we just say, well, just one more Amazon order and it'll be enough. Just one more raise. Just one more thing. Just one more. And this happens in so many ways. Identity theft of God even happens here. This sin doesn't check itself at the door. Tim Keller puts it this way. I couldn't say it this well, so I'm just going to quote Tim Keller. He says this. He says, An idol is something that we look for, or that we look to for things that only God can give. Idolatry functions widely inside religious communities when doctrinal truth is elevated to the position of a false god. This occurs when people rely on the rightness of their doctrine for their standing with God rather than on God Himself and His grace. It's subtle, but it's a deadly mistake. Another form of idolatry within your religious communities turns spiritual gifts and ministry success into a counterfeit God. We're only serving God if we're growing. We're only serving God if things go our way. Another kind of religious idolatry has to do with moral living itself. Though we may give lip service to Jesus as our example and inspiration, we often are still looking for ourselves and to ourselves as our own moral striving for salvation. It's identity. Well, we're close to God because we take communion every day. And other churches don't. That's identity. 
Communion doesn't save you. Jesus' blood saves you. See what I'm saying? We get that backwards. I'm so guilty of that. We're all so guilty of that. See how that is what idolatry is. It's an option. I'm not saying communion is optional, but it is an optional thing made essential. It's when we get the throne wrong. It's when we remove the person on the throne, even for religious things. Well, we worship better than you because we don't clap and raise our hands. God doesn't want that. It's everywhere, isn't it? I'm replacing God with my dogma, my belief, my interpretation. Jesus saves. Period. Now, that doesn't mean that doctrine and biblical study and those things aren't important. I'm not saying that. But they are a sneaky way that the enemy gets us to flip who's on the throne. I'm guilty. And I know I'm not alone. But I don't want to focus on all those negatives. I want to focus on the remedy. Because the remedy to idolatry is God-centered identity. It's getting God back on the throne. If you're to comb through, this is what's cool. I want you all to see this. This is just a little study thing. If you want to go from from here and and take a screenshot of this or ask me for these passages, you can later uh, after services. But if we're to comb through the first several chapters of Exodus, you would get a focused... uh, goal on what God wants His people to do. Always, over and over in Scripture, what He wants is a God-centered identity. Over and over, here's what comes up in Scripture, especially in the book of Exodus. In 6.6 and 7.5 and 7.15, over and over, all the way down to 16.12, and that's where I stopped because that was enough. It's all over the book of Exodus. In each of these passages, what shows up is God's desire for Moses for the people of Israel, for Egypt, and even for Pharaoh, is he does all that he does in Exodus so that he will be known. I'm doing these plagues. Why? So that there will be no doubt that there is a God in heaven. Even He even says, I want Egypt to know. I want the gods of Egypt to know that there is a God. His desire, the remedy to idolatry, is to know the Lord. It is to be near Him. To have a God-centered identity. It's intimate relationship. It's connection. It is knowledge. Now, knowledge is not facts in the Bible. Brad, right? You bring this up a lot, Brad. Uh, Knowledge, scripturally, is intimacy. The same word for knowing a husband and wife intimately is the same word to know the Lord in relationship. See what I'm saying? And that's the word that shows up in Exodus over and over. He does the plague so that people will know him. He rescues the people so he will know him. The people will know him. He brings Israel to Sinai, form a covenant so that people will know him. See, God's goal. God's goal is not for us to just be morally and righteous people. It's for you to know him. And out of that relationship with Him, guess what happens? You become Christ-like. Who 
is the ultimate example. Jesus is of good, moral, and righteousness. It isn't for us to follow the rules of worship. Although some of us are so stuck on that, we can't pass it. That is not the goal of church, to follow rules. The goal of church is for us to know Jesus. For us to be with Him. And out of being with Him, it's my desire I want to commune. It's my desire that I want to pray. It's my desire that I want to worship. It's not, I have to go to church to perform religious right. I get to go to church. And I know that makes us squirm in our seats when I talk like this. But guys, why does it make us squirm? That is biblical truth that we have gotten so far from. We have ignored for so long. Because we want to control it. And that is not what scripture wants us to do. You cannot control God more than you can control a pet lion. Right? You can't domesticate a lion, right? If you want to try, find out. We'll see you without an arm someday, right? Right? Maybe you can't. I don't know. But you can't. Certainly, you cannot domesticate God. And we try. Now, it's not even our... I may get in trouble for this one. But I'm going to say it. You know that God's desire isn't for you to be baptized either. It's for you to know Jesus and in your response to Jesus to come follow Him through baptism in water. Right? Now you go, oh, Jake, somebody's going to take that out of context. It starts with who Jesus is, right? I don't get baptized to know Jesus. I know Jesus and I respond to His grace and I get in the water because I want more of Him because I've decided that my life stinks without Him. Amen? That's baptism. That's what is the danger. That is the danger of our idolatry is we get all that stuff backwards. So, I'll finish with this before I stick my foot further in my mouth. It's all about God, guys. This is where we go wrong with idolatry in the church and idolatry in our own lives. God is not a means to an end. As if, well, I, as if the end is heaven and I just got to get to know God a little bit. He's kind of weird. and Scripture's kind of hard to figure out. And then maybe by heaven I'll get it all. That is not how it works. God is not a means to an end. God is the means and He is the end. Anything less than that is idolatry. Let me say that again. God is the ends and He is the means. Anything less is idolatry. It's me taking God off the throne and saying, no, it's my way. No, it's my time. No, it's my treasure. No, it's my talent. I want to finish with this parable. It's from Peter Rollins. I've read it before, but it's so good. I was like, I gotta bring that back up because I read it a couple weeks ago. And it just it's called it's it's a it's a he's this crazy theologian in, in Ireland and he's really smart and he talks with an accent if he was up here doing it, everybody would pay more attention to him than me because he wouldn't sound like a Texan he'd sound like an Irishman, right? Growing up, right? We always think British people are smarter than us if they sound really, you know <laughs> I can't do a British accent I'm never going to try <laughs> I was going to say a spot of tea, but anyway I can't do it <laughs> but this is a brilliant parable and I want you all to hear it because it really strikes to the heart of our, of our idolatry and what we want. Do we want Jesus or do we want something else? So here's, here's the story to this. It goes like this. 
says, you sit in silence contemplating what's just taken place. Only moments ago you were alive and well, relaxing at home with friends. Then there was a deep crushing pain in your chest that brought you crashing to the floor. The pain is now gone. You're no longer in your home. Instead, you find yourself standing on the other side of death, waiting to stand before the judgment seat and discover where you will spend eternity. But as you reflect on your life, your name is suddenly called. You hear your name and you're led down a long corridor into a majestic sanctuary where in front of you at its center is a throne. And sitting on the throne is a huge, breathtaking being who looks at you and begins to speak. The being says, My name is Lucifer. And I am the angel of light. You're immediately filled with fear and trembling as you realize that you are now faced with, face to face with the enemy of all that is true and good. The angel continues without giving you a chance to think. I have, ha- I have cast God down from his throne and banished your Christ to the realm of eternal death. It is I who now hold the keys of the kingdom. It is I who is the gatekeeper of paradise. It is for me alone to decide who shall enter eternal joy and who shall be forsaken. After saying these words, he sits up and stretches out his vast arms. In my right hand I hold eternal life, and in my left I hold eternal death. Those who would bow down and acknowledge me as their God shall pass through the gates of paradise and experience an eternity of bliss. But all who refuse will be vanquished into the second death, where they will spend eternity with their Jesus Christ. And after a long pause, he bends towards you. And he says, which will you choose? Heaven? Or Jesus? Whew. Bella, there's no truth in this parable. You can breathe easy, right? Satan's got nothing on the Lord, right? They're not equals, right? There's not some eternal battle still waging. Right? It was finished at the cross. Right? Thanks be to God for that. But the parable's point is so powerful because it brings up, will I continue to play games with God or will I seek and know God for who He is? Because the goal is for us to know Him, to love Him, to serve Him. It is to seek first the kingdom of God and then what? All other things will be added. That's And when we center our identity on seeking those things, seeking that one thing, everything else is taken. Do you want God? And God, that's the question for for an idolatrous people. Let's stand together and sing. If you need anything, we're here for you. Elders will be in the back. Um, And we're here to pray for you. This way. Oh